It's Father's Day. The Essinks are baptizing. The Gabharts are announcing. And a bunch of you, I'm guessing, will be brunching this afternoon, so let's get right after it. I want you to listen with me to a story. It's a true story. It's a good story. It's from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 3. It's full of tension, not, not the sort of suspense thriller kind of tension, but the sort of how do these things go together kind of tension. Listen to the story. I'll highlight a few of the tensions in a minute. One day, Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. A man, lame from birth, was being carried in. The people would lay him at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate so that he could ask for alms from those who were entering the temple. So when Peter and John were going into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked at him intently, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them. Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by his right hand and raised him up. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the man who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all of the people ran together towards them to the portico called Solomon's Portico, utterly astonished. When Peter saw this, he addressed them. You Israelites, why do you wonder at this and stare at us as if by our own power and piety we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he decided to release him. You rejected the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be given you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Of this, we are witnesses. By faith in his name, his faith itself has made this man strong that you both know and see. That faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of all of you. I know, friends, you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophets that the Messiah must suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God, that your sins may be wiped away that a time of refreshing may come to you in the presence of the Lord, that he may send to you the Messiah appointed for you, that is Jesus, who remains in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. 
Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you from your own people a prophet just like me. You must listen to everything that he says. So it is, whoever does not listen to him will be utterly rooted out. And all of the prophets from Samuel and those after him predicted these days, you are descendants of the prophets. And the covenant that God made with your ancestors saying to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God raised him up, he sent him first to you, blessing you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. While Peter and John were teaching, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came to them annoyed by them that they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection. So they arrested them and put them in custody overnight because it was already evening. But many who heard the word believed, and that day about 5,000 were added to the number. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Acts 3 and just a small part of chapter 4. Acts 3 follows Acts 2. Acts 2, the story of Pentecost, the sudden action of the Holy Spirit, tongues of fire, the rush of a violent wind, people start speaking in other languages, and it gives way to, one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then a story about a lame man and a Peter sermon and 5,000 converted to Christ. In it all, through it all, there are these spirit tensions, I'm calling them. Not, not suspense thriller sort of tension, but how do those two things go together kind of tension. Now, here's the first. The story starts like this. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So let me get this straight. The Spirit has just descended. That's Acts 2. Tongues of fire, the rush of a violent wind, people speaking in all sorts of languages. Pentecost starts. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly... The sudden action of the Holy Spirit gives way to the daily disciplines of our lives. That's the tension. We like to keep them apart. We like to talk about the Reformed folk with their disciplines and the Pentecostal folk who love the Spirit. We, we love to talk about one generation who likes to do things decently and in good order and the next generation into spontaneity. One group of people holding on to tradition, the next group of people eager for experience. We like to separate them. Apparently, if I'm reading Acts 3 well, they go together, they intermingle, they co-mingle. The sudden action of the Holy Spirit and the daily reality, daily devotions of our lives sit together. It's not one or the other, it's both always. I'm pressing on this because if you're one who wants to devote yourself to discipline. Make sure you keep your eyes open for the sudden disruption of the Spirit. And if you're only looking for the action of the Spirit, don't, don't turn a blind eye to the daily devotions of Christian existence. Are you hanging with me? Spirit tension. So this is uh, the summer I'm preaching. We're preaching through the book of Acts. I'm calling the summer series of sermons Acts which I made up. <laughs> the formal title to the book, if you're to open your Bible, is The Acts of the Apostles. 
It's the retelling of the early years of the Christian church flourishing into existence. It's the acts of the apostles. What did they do? How did they do it? Some people, though, suggest the the book ought to be more appropriately titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's it's the sudden inbreaking of the Spirit of God, the sudden disruption of God's Spirit in our lives. I like the fact that there's tension between the two. What should we call it? The Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Spirit? Yeah, that's a great idea. Because both always co-mingle, both always together. You devote yourself to daily acts of discipline, keeping your eyes open to the sudden action of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick a discipline. The long list of Christian, classic Christian disciplines, prayer, fasting, worship, celebration, meditation, and on and on the list goes. If you're looking for the list, you can find it in a book by Richard Foster titled Celebration of Disciplines. They're all listed there and explained. If you want the book, I'll buy it for you if you don't have it. Pick one discipline. Pick one. And over the next 10 weeks, devote yourself to it. Give yourself to it. And whilst doing so, keep your eyes open for the suddenness of the Spirit. They go together. That's the first tension. Here's the second. Blessing and burden are not determinative of Spirit action. In other words, the circumstances of your life are not the sole determining factor on God's presence in, with, and for you in life. The the man lame from birth is laid at the beautiful gate, people walking past him to get into the temple. The announcement of Jesus is made. He's, He's healed. His ankles and feet are made strong. Peter starts preaching this sermon, not exactly the kindest sermon you've ever heard, I mean, how would you like it if I showed up with a Sunday with that kind of attitude? You killed the author of life. You rejected the Holy One of Israel. His most generous statement is, friends, I know you acted in ignorance. Probably wouldn't go over that well. But it goes over quite well, actually, at least seen through a certain lens. 5,000 are converted to Christ. Amazing. Who's going to question the action of God? 5,000 come to faith. Of course God is among us. Of course God is active. Of course God is doing something. Look at the ROI. 5,000. Of course, Peter and John are in prison. The same sermon that, got five, that, that invited 5,000 people to faith was the same sermon that ended Peter and John in prison overnight. So which is it, blessing or burden? Neither of which are determinative of the Spirit's action. You know what I'm saying? We tend to think if God is up to something, it must go well for me. Happier, healthier, and wiser are the only logical outcomes of Christian existence. What if that's not true? What if blessing or burden are not determinative of spirit action? And sometimes, I mean, it seems to me more often than not, people who experience deep pain also express intimacy with Christ. Have you heard that testimony? 2001, I was diagnosed with two forms of depression. I've told you this story. Not one, two, not a bad week. Psychiatrist said, you are depressed. I wouldn't trade it for the world. 
I wouldn't ask for it, nor would I trade it. Blessing or burden are not determinative of spirit action. This is why the Apostle Paul could say, rejoice in the Lord always. This is why he says, I've learned to be content in any and all circumstances. This is why Jesus would say, I don't give as the world gives. Ours is the faith that landed Peter and John in prison. Ours is the faith that had Christ crucified on the cross. Ours is the faith that had him laid in the tomb. The circumstances of your life are not the sole determining factor of God's action in, with, and for you in life. Spirit tension. Now here's the third, and then we'll come to the table. The the big, cosmic, grand scope of God's salvation always goes through the local, particular, personal realities of our lives. The, The man, you sort of get lulled to sleep, actually. One day... Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. You just sort of get lulled to sleep. This is just, they're doing what they've always been doing. It's the hour of prayer. We're going to go pray. We're going to lay the lame man. He's been there for decades now. There's this, uh, it's a scenario of objectification. I think. They don't care. The lame man doesn't care the stories of the people going into the temple. He doesn't care. He just wants what they have. Just give me your money. Did you notice Peter had to say, look at us, because he was already on to the next guy. He doesn't care about Peter or John. Look at us over here. Now, to be fair, the people walking by didn't exactly ask a lot of questions either. Uh, who, who knows why he's lame? Who cares why he's lame? He's always at the beautiful gate. Go by the golden gate. It'll be a lot easier. You notice we, didn't, we don't know his name. The man remains unnamed. Probably a couple of reasons. One, the story's about Jesus, not the man. Second reason, they didn't know it. They didn't know his name. It's a scenario of objectification. The man goes to the temple, not the downtown market. Why wouldn't you go to the downtown market if you wanted some alms, some money? You know, that's where money is exchanged. He goes to the temple to leverage their charity, their religious charity. This is objectification on both sides. Not seeing people, not caring, not noticing. And and the moment the story turns, Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them. And then this wild, extravagant healing story takes place. Peter announces the sermon. And in the sermon, Peter starts shouting about universal restoration. That's what it said, that he may send the Messiah at the appointed time, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration. In other words, all things being made new. He ends the sermon, all the families of the earth will be blessed. People from every language and tribe and nation will all gather around the throne, the big, grand cataclysmic scope of God's salvation being announced and is at the core of Christianity. And all of it happens because Peter and John looked at him intently and said, look at us. The big, huge, sweeping story of God unfolding in the world always happens through the local, particular, personal realities of our lives. Look at us. It means a couple of things, I think. Notice people. 
see people not as tools you can leverage or obstacles in the way. See them for who they are. Learn their name. Know their story. Care enough. It may be the most missional thing you do. Remember when I was going into middle school and I was quite anxious, so I asked my much older sister for some advice? She said, just make sure you say hi to people by name. Remember that? Make sure you say hi to people. People long to be known. They long to be seen. They long say hi by name as a, as a sign, as, a, as, a, as an indication. I want to know you. I want to hear your story. Look at us. Second thing, if you want to participate in God's unfolding drama of salvation, do it with the person next to you. Sometimes I wonder, I'm a part of the church, so I'm picking on me. Sometimes I wonder if the church isn't so interested in being about the big, huge, universal thing God is doing in the world. We do it at the expense of other people closest to us who are actually the church. We get on with our mission and vision and strategy. We get on with our values and all of the things that are so important. I'm not picking on them, but sometimes I wonder if we do it at the excuse, at the exclusion of the people in front of us. Look at us. If that's been your experience of church, I'm sorry. That is not God's heart. Eugene Peterson says, the gospel is personal or it is nothing. Look at us. So adolescent, emerging adult, burying yourself in Minecraft and Snapchat, just hoping to be seen, hoping to be known. The gospel of Christ says, I see you, I know you. Look at us. So single person, quite content in your singleness, but also with all of the questions that come with it. I see you, I know you. Look at us. So determined parent, longing for those few minutes when it's finally quiet at the end of the day and you can last for all of about 47 seconds before you fall asleep. I see you. Look at us. So employee or employer, whatever, carrying the banner for the company, wondering every once in a while, does it matter? I see you. Look at us. Shall I go on? Okay. Uh, the addiction haunts, the temptation hounds, anxiety swells. I see you. Look at us. Shall I go on? The disease has been diagnosed. The pain is real. The relationship is shaky. I see you. Look at us. Shall I go on? The one you loved is now lost. The child is a long way from home, and I'm not talking by geography. And there's a pit in your stomach every morning when you wake up. I see you. Look at us. If you want to participate in the grand sweeping realities of God's salvation, it will always be local, particular, and personal. Peter looked at him intently, as did John, and said, look at us. Uh, Richard Foster, he's the guy who wrote the book Celebration of Disciplines, the one I'm going to buy for you if you need it. 
40-year uh, anniversary this past fall of the celebration of the publication of the Celebration of Disciplines. Uh, Richard Foster gave an address to a gathered group of church people, uh, urging for a certain way of life in this uh, cultural moment. Uh, he can be a little feisty. He can get a little ferocious at times. I want you to listen. Uh, Ben's going to play it for you. I want you to listen to Richard Foster urging us on in mission. But first, if we really want to be a counter-cultural people, I suggest first of all that we simply shut up <laughs> and listen. We listen to our neighbor. We listen to the angry. We listen to the fearful. We listen to the bruised and the broken. We listen. Simply listen. Listen. Simply listen. What if the most significant act you can offer for the kingdom this week is paying attention to the person next to you? Look at us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.